when we do that, we can actually cure that tumor in real time. So it's actually one of the most rewarding things that I do because a patient comes in in the morning with, let's say, a liver cancer, and we can, I can, I can ablate it and I, I treat it, and they go home the same day with uh, a Band-Aid and being and cancer-free. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guest is Dr. Mina McCary. Mina is a specialist in interventional radiology. That's radiology, which refers to imaging, not to be confused with radiation treatment. In interventional radiology, Mina and other experts utilize advanced imaging techniques to pinpoint the exact location of a cancer, and then using minimally invasive surgical techniques, such as inserting a thin wire through a pinhole, they direct treatment to the exact spot where it's most effective. There are several advantages to these procedures, and it's a growing field, and Mina will fill us in on interventional radiology. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Well, I'm very fascinated by this whole topic, and I'm anxious to learn more. But first, let's talk a little bit about your background, which, from what I understand, is very Buckeye-centric. <laughs> That's right. Go Bucks. <laughs> So uh, I'm from Columbus, and I did my uh, training here uh, at Ohio State, and I had the privilege of doing my diagnostic training, interventional training, and I've uh, been recruited to stay here as well in, in our department. Wow. So what made growing up here, what got you interested in science, in medicine, oncology, any relatives who were in the field, any parents are in the medical profession or cousins or what? There has to be some connection, <laughs> maybe or maybe not. You're the first. No, absolutely. So, you know, it's the people. So I've always had interest in taking care of patients or just the, sci the, the art of medicine and also the science of medicine. And um, over the years, you know, as I was going through school, my experiences kind of reinforced that. And then when I was in college, unfortunately, uh, you know, my dad, you know, passed on my first semester of college from sudden, uh, you know, medical issues. And oh, I'm sorry. that, uh, you know, I see his face in every patient I treat that kind of changed my perspective on patients. And, and every day I strive to take care of patients uh, because at, of that. At that point, were you already heading toward medical school or is that the the thing that changed your your trajectory that was early on in my college experience so i was interested in science and i was learning more about healthcare in general and, and other uh areas but uh that and along other other personal experience have been through kind of reinforced my interest for taking care of patients uh, and that's what keeps me going every day you know it's the patients despite the challenges or the difficulties or what we go through is you know when you're able to help and kind of see you know the impact it is just fascinating yeah you do that every day <laughs> that's that's what i'm always amazed at that for a living you and so many other people here um save lives oh thank you <laughs> so let's talk about interventional radiology which i hadn't really heard of or know very very little bit, bit about so give us a quick history on how it sort of came about and and where you and other leaders in this field are today. Sure. So interventional radiology is a cutting edge area of medicine where we use technology to treat patients. And 
in the grand scheme of things, it's relatively recent. So the first interventional procedure was performed in 1964 by Dr. Charles Dodder. He had a patient who was about to lose her leg, um, I think 80-year-old or something like that, and uh, they had occlusion of a blood vessel, and he figured out a way. What's an occlusion of a blood vessel? uh, Blockage. A blockage, okay. A blockage of a blood vessel. And back at that time, there was no options, and the patient did not want an amputation. So he figured out the basis of our specialty, which is, you know, as you mentioned before, um, using a pinhole incision, going into a blood vessel, and using wires and other devices. And he created all those at that time because there, there was nothing on the market. And then he helped that patient. And then since then, newer and newer technologies developed. And our specialty was recognized in 2012 uh, by the American Board of Medical Specialties as his own specialty. So it's only 10 years old uh, officially. You know. In the surgery you just described on the, that woman, mm-hmm. he used the minimally invasive surgical techniques. But where did the imaging come in? On that, I, I mean, I know you weren't there or, or anything, but that's sort of the the other main part of this, right? Right. So that's a great question. So the imaging is is what he used to, uh, what we call it is imaging guidance. So he used it to see inside the body so he can uh, manipulate his devices. Because if you make a tiny incision and insert a wire, you don't see where it's going. Right. So the imaging helps us see inside the body to guide that wire or that device to do the treatment. Well, we'll get more into that later because I'm very curious. I want you to sort of put us in that operating room and what you're looking at and what you see in the patient. But but before we get to that, so so it's a new um, surgical specialty. It's about 10 years old. So as it grew, what are the things that it's used for? And from what I understand, certainly many, many ways to use it for cancer patients, but also other applications for non-cancer patients. So there are a lot of patients that can have bleeding from um, benign causes, meaning uh, trauma, somebody has a car accident or something like that, or uh, gastrointestinal bleeding from their stomach. So this is internal bleeding. Internal bleeding. And uh, also from cancer, sometimes cancer can erode into blood vessels and it can bleed. And a lot of times these patients are too sick to have large operations to address that. And the beauty of the treatments that we offer those patients is that we can, you know, create a pinhole incision, as you mentioned, go in with our um, catheters and wires, find where the bleeding is coming from, we plug it, and we leave. So it's minimally invasive as it gets, and it's extremely effective. And in fact, it's one of the most rewarding things that I do when I get called at 3 in the morning, patients bleeding and they're dying and we go in and as soon as we treat them they're not pale anymore their heart their blood pressure start going up their heart rate becomes normal and there's that feeling where you're able to help and in in most of the dire situations is just very rewarding wow that's fascinating you tie off all the bleeding veins and arteries and the skin color changes as the blood circulates throughout the body again exactly and you actually see the the impact on their uh, vital signs is what we call it the blood pressure and the heart rate and in real time uh, you know as soon as you you uh, treat them and they're getting obviously resuscitation with blood products etc because the bleeding stops uh, you can see in real time that that they become normal and they're no longer in a critical stage so all right, I'm starting to get a sense, and I'm starting to be able to visualize what you do. So, give me another example or two. Let's let's do some more non-cancer examples before we really dive into cancer ones. So, what would be another 
sort of procedure that you do on a fairly regular basis? Uh, on a fairly regular basis, um, we do, uh, for example, patients who have uh, abscesses or uh, pockets of infection in their body, and sometimes they, they can be, you know, they can be sick, but sometimes they can be very sick or what we call septic, where the, the infection goes into their system and they, they can get really sick. And a lot of times, you know, that would require big operations to open them up and clear that infection. Or we can, in interventional radiology, we can go in, numb them up, make a tiny incision, use imaging like x-rays and ultrasounds, etc., to see inside the body, place a small drain, get that infection out, remove the drain in a couple of days, and the patients are, you know, with along with antibiotics and other treatments, they recover remarkably well. So I'm trying to visualize this. So when you say you use an imaging machine, what are you looking at? Is the screen is right there, and it's giving you real-time pictures of what's going on inside that patient's body? Exactly. So... I can see inside the body with uh, a CAT scanner, for example, or an X-ray machine, or with an ultrasound machine, and uh, that helps me do minimally invasive work inside the body without opening the body to see what's inside. And so the whole point of my specialty is to be in and out to fix the problem without, you know, leaving you know much damage to the body. So in and out, and it looks like you're not even there ever there. <laughs> yeah. So instead of having a 12-inch scar and <laughs> three nights in the hospital. Exactly. You don't have that. And then I'm trying to picture when you insert the the thin wire that you said had a, a way to sort of suction out mm -hmm. uh, the abscess, you can see that. You'll see that in real time too as it goes in. Absolutely. We see the wire. We There are other devices we use, but the wire is what we work, you know, the, the railing that we work over, but we, we, we use sometimes needles. We use balloons to uh, expand, you know, blockages. We can use, we can place drains and, and those are like tubes that drain to the outside. And then when they're done, we take them out. Um, all sorts of, you know, technologies that we have. So there's all sorts of little tubes and wires and, and exactly. devices that, <laughs> that have been developed to help you do what you do that are really tiny and really effective. Absolutely. And that's exactly. what uh, is really exciting because the technology, there's no limit. You know, if you can imagine yeah. something that you need to fix a medical issue, you can uh, you can make it. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break because that was a great overview on interventional radiology. And when we'll come back, we'll talk about how it's applied to cancer patients. In today's world, misinformation abounds. But at the Ohio State Health and Discovery website, we're addressing today's most relevant health, wellness, science, and research topics all from the Ohio State experts you can trust. We're tapping into physicians, scientists, and thought leaders across our medical center and health sciences colleges to give you the deeper story behind the headlines and the truth about the topics affecting the health of individuals, society, and the world. Visit health.osu.edu today. We're back with Mina McCary, a specialist in interventional radiology, and you gave us a great overview on all some of the different ways, particularly the non-cancer ways it can be utilized. But now let's dive in and talk about how you're using it here at the James to treat cancer patients. Absolutely. So 
uh, one of the be the privileges that I have when I treat cancer patients is that I have the opportunity to be part of their journey from beginning to end. And, um, you know, when patients come to us as part of radiology, we're able to diagnose their conditions with imaging, x-rays, and, and CTs, and CAT scans, and MRIs, which we, we read and contribute to that. We also perform their biopsies. So, um, we can use X-ray, uh, CTs and ultrasounds to look inside the body, and if there's a lung mass or a kidney mass or, or in other organs, we can go in and get some uh, samples so we can figure out what the disease is. And then we work with our oncology colleagues and surgeons and radiation oncologists and, and others to, to come up with a treatment plan. And um, if, if the treatment plan involves chemotherapy, for example, many patients get ports, uh, which are devices that where they can get their chemotherapy, and we have the privilege of doing that. So when, when you say that a patient comes to you, I'm just curious, is a patient come to you directly, or would another James on oncologist say, oh, you know what, this is something that uh, interventional radiology would work really well for, I'm going to... Uh, recommend this patient to Dr. McCary? Almost all the patients come referred to me from oncologists, whether at OSU or outside. Uh, but we also participate in tumor boards and interdisciplinary discussions, you know, as a team. And uh, we're active in, in that, those discussions. So we, in those interdisciplinary meetings where multiple experts from across the board participate, when a patient comes to OSU, we can contribute to that decision making as well directly. And then occasionally, sometimes a patient will, will find something on imaging incidentally or will diagnose something, and then we get the ball rolling. But it's always a team sport. But it sounds like, because you said it's a relatively new specialty, right. and maybe not particularly at smaller hospitals that treat cancer patients, they're just now starting to learn about what you can do. And, and they don't have an interventional radiologist, but they know, oh, wait, the James has one. So, or a team of them. So that's how the people are starting to flow to you. Absolutely, absolutely. And even in, in other institutions that have IR, they don't always necessarily have the full spectrum of IR. We have the opportunity to OSU to offer uh, the full gamut of interventional oncology, including the newest uh, treatments that might not always be available elsewhere. Yeah, you have one of the biggest and best programs in the country. Expertise and resources to do those three. Yeah, that's what, that's the advantage of having <laughs> being part of a comprehensive and large cancer center and research center. Absolutely. So before I got off on a tangent here, you were starting to explain some of the different ways that it's used for treating cancer patients. So continue on that path. Oh, absolutely. So if it's, you know, if the, the decision is to, for a patient, for example, like I said, to get chemotherapy and they need access or, or uh, you know, access like ports or other, line, other lines or long IVs that we can put in them so they can get the treatment. We have the privilege of placing those uh, devices in the patients. If the decision is to actually treat then uh, in IR, then we have a variety of uh, options. So for example, um, we have something called ablation where we can uh, place a one or more probes, which are small um, needles in a patient and we can freeze or burn a tumor. And uh, obviously it's not offered for all tumors in all stages, but when we do that, we can actually cure that tumor in real time. So it's actually one of the most rewarding things that I do because a patient comes in in the morning with let's say a liver cancer and we can, I can, I can ablate it and I, I treat it and they go home the same day with uh, a Band-Aid and, and cancer free. So that is just, 
extremely rewarding uh, treatment that we do to patients. Wait a second, I gotta <laughs> wrap my, my mind about the, around this. So someone has liver cancer, liver mm -hmm. cancer tumor, yeah. it, it is, I, like, let's just say it's a small tumor on their mm -hmm. liver, not the whole liver. Um, that might be a whole different Correct. situation. You go in, freeze it. What happens when you freeze it? That kills the cancer cells? Yeah, so typically in, in, in what you're describing, I would use heat. So I would uh, heat it up and I basically would burn the tumor and a small margin around it. And uh, the probes that we use to do that, usually I would use one, which is so small that uh, we don't even need to stitch anything at the end. We just put a Band-Aid. And uh, obviously it's not all stages of tumors and not all locations of tumors, but for patients that can get it, um, we can have really good outcomes. So what types of tumors, and, and is it, if they're over a certain size, will it not work? It has to be smaller tumors? It depends on the size of the tumor. It depends on the location of the tumor. It depends on if they have one or more. Uh, it depends on the patient's, you know, what we call comorbidities. Uh, it's a pretty safe procedure, but for this specific procedure, we have to put them uh, with under general anesthesia so they're comfortable during that time. So if they can handle that, it depends on a few factors, but uh, we've been able to offer to many patients that are candidates for it. Wow, this is a fascinating way to treat cancer. Give me a couple examples of, you, you gave one of liver cancer. What are right. some of the other cancers that you've treated with this? And is it, I thought you said freezing before, but is it, then you said heat, or can you do both of those techniques? Yes, yeah, so you can freeze or heat, and it depends on the organ, and it depends on uh, the, there's benefits, there's pros and cons from a technical perspective, and um, you know, cryoablation uh, is the freezing. You can see the ice ball in real time, so you have better visualization, but you may have to use more probes. The heat, for example, you might get away with one or two, uh, but it's better for other, you know, if you have a safe distance between the tumor and other critical structures. So there's a lot of factors we think about. But to give you another example of other organs we treat, I treat uh, kidney cancer. I treat uh, lung cancer in certain cases. Uh, I also treat patients who have tumors that are benign, uh, but they're causing uh, uh, pressure on their body and we're trying to shrink them. So for example, desmoid tumors, which are benign tumors that can develop, but they're hard to control sometimes. We can freeze those tumors. Um, and, and, and those are the main ones we do so far. <laughs> wow, that's amazing because, I mean, there's scores of kidney and lung cancer surgeons specialists here at the James, some of the, the nation's best. But what you do is something different what them, from what they do. So I take it you'll collaborate with them in deciding what, when to do a more traditional surgery or when to do uh, interventional radiology. Oh, absolutely. The collaboration is key here. And uh, I talk to oncologists and surgeons on a daily basis, and a lot of my colleagues and my friends too. And that's how we can get put best patient care because we put our minds together and try to find the best treatment for a specific patient. Not all patients, even with the same tumor, are the same. And not all tumors, even if they're the same size, are, you know, every tumor behaves differently. So uh, the best way to, to get the, the best treatment plan for a patient is to work together with other specialists to find the, the personalized treatment plan for that patient. Yeah, definitely. And, and you're just giving, you're mm -hmm. having more options to have better outcomes. Exactly. 
So, okay, so we talked about port placement. And just in case people don't know, ports are sort of the, for people who have regular chemotherapy, it's a little device planted in their chest that way, and the medicine goes through there so they don't have to inject into people's veins over and over and over. And it, it's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's a real surgery to get those in, so you're, that's a big advance. And then with ablation, with this freezing or heating, of small tumors in kidneys, lungs, and sometimes benign ones. So that's a lot already. Mm-hmm. So what's next? I'm sure there's a few more things <laughs> that you do, and I'll bet you there's more <laughs> that you're working on doing, developing new techniques. Oh, absolutely. There's much more. So um, we're just getting started. We're just right? getting started, that's Steve. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is, again, this is what excites me about my field and, and being able to help patients and offer them a variety of options. So uh, in terms of treatments, we talked about ablation-type treatments. And then there are also another group of treatments. We call them catheter-directed, which uh, are basically back to the traditional IR where we go into blood vessels. So we make a tiny pinhole incision, and and usually in a vessel in the um, groin area where, where we go in. And then we use wires and tiny catheters, and we find the blood flow to that tumor. And then we can inject uh, microscopic beads that block that flow to the tumor so we deprive it from flow and oxygen. But also sometimes these uh, are coated with chemotherapy. So instead of giving chemotherapy that goes in their entire system, it's directed exactly at the tumor. Sometimes they're coated with radiation. So we give them you know, radiation directly into that. And um, this can be done primarily for the liver at this time, but it can be used in other situations as well. And um, that's a whole new world where we can offer patients uh, directed treatment, and this is we call it local regional treatment, by giving the you know the whole punch directly at the doorstep of the tumor, and we can use multiple mechanisms to do that, you know, depriving it flow and sometimes chemo and sometimes radiation right there. So when you deprive the flow mm-hmm. of blood to a cancer tumor, it's going to die. Exactly, it's going to shrink and die. It'll shrink and die. Wow. And that probably works best when it hasn't metastasized? Most of these treatments are done when uh, talking specifically about the liver, when we have liver predominant disease. Uh, Some of them are done with the goal of curing the cancer or or getting rid of it. Some of them are done for the goal of palliation to control it because um, the liver is a key organ in the body. If you have tumors in the liver, you can't live a long time without a liver. So we have to do everything we can to keep the tumors under control. And sometimes it's for symptoms. If those tumors are secreting hormones and causing symptoms in patients, for example, in neuroendocrine tumors, patients can get flushing and nausea and other symptoms. We can treat the liver and patients get improvement in their symptoms. So this, the, or one of the big improvements here is that instead of cutting out the tumor mm-hmm. and along with it a piece of the liver, you don't have to do that that more invasive surgery, you're cutting off the blood flow and, and the tumor goes away, hopefully by itself. So that's, okay. that's a big improvement. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes we can get something called a complete response where the tumor goes away, but sometimes we um, get something called partial response where we can shrink it or control it. So uh, this, these treatments, some of them can be treated as many times as needed. So it's not a one time oh. and some, some are one time and some are not. So ablation is a one time. Some of the catheter-directed therapies are one time, but sometimes they're not, and the patients might need multiple treatments to keep things at bay, and, um, and that's how they work. And so far, you said the liver is the predominant organ in which this is done. Is, are there, 
trials to try it on other organs. So there are other institutions and other research teams working on, uh, for example, the radiation one I was telling you about, where we have these particles or beads that have radiation on them. There are some groups that are looking at applying that to prostate cancer. There are some groups that are looking at applying that to brain tumors, and uh, where instead of radiating the whole brain, finding the flow to the tumor and, and inserting it there. And there's a whole lots of you know progress to be made, obviously. Wow. Okay. Uh, as you mentioned, there's a lot more. So what, what's next on your list? <laughs> so what's next on my list? So uh, we talked about uh, diagnosing, we talked about treating, and then palliation. So uh, unfortunately, some patients... Palliation means uh, re- reduce pain for people whose cancer is terminal. Exactly. In patients where we unfortunately cannot cure their cancers, but we want to improve, improve or maintain their quality of life, um, we can actually do different treatments to, to address that. and um, which, for ex- is, which is really important because people can be around for a while and you want them to have the best quality of life they can. Exactly. And usually in, in many of those cases, there's not a whole lot that can be offered. But, um, but fortunately with IR, along with our colleagues from palliative medicine and in other areas, we can, we can offer uh, treatments. So, for example, patients have blockages in their organs that are causing symptoms. So tumors in the kidney or in the bladder or in the prostate that are blocking the kidney and patients are getting pain and and back pressure and all that, we can place drains in the kidney to drain that urine and help them feel better. Or in the liver or uh, interventional pain procedures that we can do to uh, ablate or treat nerves uh, that are causing pain. Or um, vascular, so regarding vessels, blood vessels like veins. Um, a lot of times, uh, patients have uh, blockages of veins when their cancers grow, and that can the be... cancer blocks the vein. Exactly. It pushes against it and... Okay. Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, if you think about it, it's like a mechanical obstruction. The, the vessels are the plumbing, and you have a big mass or rock or something pressing on it, and that pipe gets blocked. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's no treatment, no effective treatments often for those patients because at that point, you know, they're not candidates for surgery and it's a, it's palliation perspective. So one of the things that we can do that can often be life-saving is we can build those veins, and it's called venous reconstruction. Uh, we can make tiny incisions, try to cross those blockages, and... Uh, try to build those veins with, with stents and balloons and, and other devices. Wait, so you mean if there's a blockage in a vein, you can unblock it or you just almost create an alternate route around it or both? That is a fantastic uh, question. So if, if, it's, if the vein is still preserved but uh, compressed, we can open it up. If the vein is gone, we can actually try to go through that same, similar pass or, or where the remnant or the previous vein was and actually build a new vein right there. How do you do that? How do you build a new vein? We use grafts and stents to, to address that. From the person's own body? No, uh, they're covered stents. Um, they're uh, prosthetic materials. So, oh, there's, there's prosthetic veins that you can put in someone? Uh, they're stents, so their stents are like metal pipes, and um, sometimes they're uncovered, and sometimes they're covered where they you can. Uh, oh, so you have <laughs> uh, you have a, a space between where the vein was broken, right. and you insert a metal stent be- to connect them. Exactly. And then the stent is uncovered, and, but it just flows through. Exactly, and sometimes you need uncovered, and sometimes you need covered. 
uh, depending on the situation. Oh, if it's touching something that you don't want the metal to touch, or exactly, or if you don't, if if um, you don't want, if it's let's say it's a tumor and you don't want the tumor to protrude through the stent, or you know, there's a lot of technical factors depending on the size of the vein, location. Uh, Pressure, extrinsic pressure, some of these have something we call radial force, like how much uh, it stays open. Uh, so there's a lot of science that we think about when we make those decisions. So I'm thinking in my mind of like a, a creek that goes underneath <laughs> underneath the road, They build the, or they build the road over it and they put one of those big round pipes. Exactly. That's sort of what you're doing, it's, the pipe that connects the two sides of the creek. It's all about plumbing, van. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yours is a little more high tech. <laughs> and <laughs> but I mean, but I... I like I said, that's a really simple way to describe it. But this is really high-tech, complicated surgery that requires a lot of manual dexterity and skill. Absolutely. And, and, and a variety of risks and techniques and expertise to do these. But they're really exciting because those patients have no hope and no options otherwise yeah. in most of the cases. And sometimes um, these blockages or when the veins are gone can be even life-threatening. So you end up with a patient who's very sick and they have no options, and being able to do these procedures give him hope. So this surgery that you just described, the venous reconstruction, mm -hmm. you have imaging mm -hmm. that shows you what's going on inside, and you're, you can't see inside with your own eyes, so you're looking at the screen, and how are you, and so you have to look at the screen, but then your hands are working independently to manipulate these devices. I mean, Absolutely. That, sounds like a a skill a craft or a skill that takes how do you learn how to do that <laughs> <laughs> uh, lots of uh, work and hours and uh, practice uh, you know uh, the way you phrase it is uh, right on, on on point there you know you, you could be even standing by the patient's leg manipulating these microscopic wires in your hand and affecting you know the, the those wires and catheters are you know, near their liver or heart yeah. or somewhere else, and you're manipulating them right there, and you're looking and you're coordinating that, not just with what you see, but also with the tactile feedback. That's a huge thing. Um, you know, sometimes you can feel with how a wire is passing or how a device is deploying, and that's a huge part of being a good or expert IR. Oh, you can tell if it's going in easily or if it's hitting an obstruction. Exactly, and you can actually tell exactly what's going on by that tactile feedback, and that's what I teach my fellows and residents, um, because that would differentiate you from uh, not just being a good IR, but being successful, because some of these procedures are near, are near impossible, and you're trying to... Uh, you know, go through blockages safely and not, you know, uh, cause issues. So uh, it takes integration of understanding of the anatomy, understanding of patients' uh, re anatomical relationships of their organs from prior CAT scans and, and studies they had before the procedure, plus in real time the imaging that you have, plus the feel, plus your experience, plus the the expertise in the equipment that you have. <laughs> wow, that's why it's near impossible, because that's complicated. It is. And when you do it, when you have a, a, a something that's blocked, a vein mm -hmm. that's blocked, you unblock it, connect it, and the blood suddenly flowing through it, then wherever in the direction it is traveling, do you see the blood flow and open up all these little veins and arteries going throughout the body? Absolutely. In fact, uh, one of my favorite things to do is after one of these procedures, and some of these can be, you know, three hours, and some of them can be 20 hours. That's how long 20. The, the longest I've had. Most of them, luckily, are not that long. 
but just to give you the range of you know if you're building somebody from you know I've taken care of a patient who had blockage all the way from their heart all the way down to their legs so that was the one I'm referring to the length but most of them are shorter than that uh, but one of my favorite things to show those patients after the procedures to take the pre and the post pictures that I save and and, and show them <laughs> and it looks like tree branches going out are suddenly there, right? Absolutely. There, and there's it, it, nothing there, and then there's all these branches of blood and circulating. Exactly. And, I, and ideally, you could um, even, you know, I try to do what I do is I will cover the, the before imaging, and I, I tell them, you know, if anybody looked at this picture, they would have no idea that you never had veins. Your veins were blocked. And this is a land, you know, the characteristics of a good reconstruction is it looks as normal as it gets. So that's pretty amazing, particularly the venous reconstruction. And I can picture it in my mind of these veins opening up. So as you mentioned, we're only 10 years in to this being a specialty, which is really new in medicine and in cancer. So what's going to happen next in just in terms of how much bigger it'll get in terms of doing procedures and new types of procedures that may be down the road that you're going to learn and, and perfect? Absolutely. The future is bright, Steve, and um, everybody that's in this field is really excited about what's to come because the future of medicine is minimally invasive, uh, quicker recovery, uh, less risk of complications, and cost-effective. Uh, when we do, when we have any procedure, any treatment that has these characteristics, that's how you can have a huge impact on patients and improving quality of life. Yeah, and, and it sounds like as as it becomes a more known, a bigger, there's more people who do what you do, that in labs around the world, they're gonna start design, designing things that will help you, like better ways to get the radiation directly and better chemo and immunotherapy to go, to go right in. Is that, is that true? Are, they, is, are there sort of new drugs and things that you can put in through interventional radiology that are gonna make it even more effective? Absolutely, and uh, not just, you know, we're, we're scratching the surface. So, for example, the treatments that we do deliver where we inject uh, beads and they can have chemotherapy or radiation, there's two developments. Now, uh, some groups are working on uh, the role of immunotherapy as an embolic agent or as a, as a treatment agent in those types of procedures to see if we can actually just deliver directly there what impact we see. So that is very, very, very exciting. Uh, there is also new development in the radiation part, something called radiation segmentectomy. And uh, it allows us to, instead of radiating a big part of the liver, we can focus our radiation even more and deliver more radiation via the catheter. The outcomes from this are curative in most cases, so it's almost like doing big surgery without a surgery. That's why they call it segmentectomy. It's like a removing se a segment seg out. Oh which is a big surgery without doing a, a, segment, a surgery. So that is very exciting in, in that world. Ablation technologies have been evolving all the time with newer devices and different power and different techniques. And then also uh, being able to treat other organs and, and offering hope to other, other, um, other patients. Wow. Thanks. That was a great overview. And I take it as a pioneer in a new technology who gets to, like you said, you're from A to Z when you're with the patient from the beginning to the end of their treatment, that must be what, what fuels you to do this. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's what I'm passionate about, actually. And this is why I do this. And 
And some of these procedures are straightforward and some are more complex, but what gives me the energy at the end of the day is after I'm done with the treatment, going back to the patient and their loved ones and telling them what happened, uh, that is priceless to me, uh, especially at the end of an ablation day, for example. And I'm, um, you know, I say, congratulations, we treated your tumor, it's you're, you're cancer-free, and they go home with a Band-Aid. The incision is so small, you even have to put a stitch in there. That, to me, I, I could see that being my dad or my family or me being in that position and um, being able to deliver hope is just something that is very, very rewarding to me. Well, thanks for sharing that, and thanks for your, your passion. Thank you, and thank you again for the opportunity to be here today, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, more exciting treatments for our patients. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur D. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.